Hello faithful listener, just a word before you start listening to this week's episode. If you've been following us, you will have heard us discuss Stage Blether, which is a podcast about Scottish theatre run by our friend and colleague Sam Haddo. Um, this week's episode was inspired by a conversation we had with Sam and it relates directly to the Stage Blether episode which is called General Disobedience. Um, so if you like this episode, we recommend you go and listen to General Disobedience. Uh, that episode actually was released before this one was recorded, but they are very similar and they deal with very similar issues. So we hope you enjoy it, and if you do, even if you don't, go and listen to Stage Blether, because it is very good. Thank you. And now, State of the Theory. The lie the poetry tells Is constant as the truth itself Without the lies and the false beliefs Where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. Hope you've been well. Thank you for many comments on our previous episodes. What are we doing today? Today we are talking about, well, we're bringing together a couple of seemingly unrelated, disparate news bites that have caught our eye recently. Yeah, for the last couple of weeks, sort of. Various stories to do with lady parts. Lady parts, yes. Who gets to have them? Whose counts as lady parts? Who gets to see them? And when and where? Yes. Um, there have been... A f- obviously, the bathroom legislation in the United States has been an obsession mm. of the, the U.S. media and certain legislative bodies in the United States. Um, but there have been some other other cases about women in public spaces being policed for various reasons. Um, I'm thinking of the case of the woman on our our favorite airline, Southwest Airlines. Call back to an episode a couple of weeks ago on Flying While Muslim. Yep, go visit that one. <laughs> there was a um, not to do with the airline this time surprisingly enough, but a passenger on, um, this was, was, I found this on the Huffington Post, but I think it's been reported elsewhere, passenger on Southwest Airlines was so, male, you know, a man, so deeply offended at a a woman um, wearing a hijab on his flight that he went up to her and he pulled it off and he said something to the effect of, this is America thereby implying that her veil was un-American, and also that because it was un-American, she no longer had the right to wear it. Yes. Um, and denying her all levels of personhood and freedom, granted to her by the American Constitution, by the way, for those unfamiliar with how our Constitution works. Mm-hmm. Um, also the case of the high heels... This was a British... This was a British case. PricewaterhouseCoopers, a a global financial corporation, uh, sent home a female member of staff um, 
I think she was working as a secretary, as an agency secretary, so she wasn't employed by PricewaterhouseCoopers, she was employed by a contracted company, and she was sent home because she refused to wear heels, uh, which was supposed to be part of her dress code. And um, one of the things that was reported in response to this was um, she asked if men had to wear heels as well, and she was laughed at uh, for that, and she has now started a... a, a fairly successful campaign already to try to change British legislation that means that companies will no longer be able to demand that their, their female staff wear heels. It's interesting. I mean, that has, has implications for a lot of industries. I know the airline industry makes use of this legislation. Um, the entertainment industry makes use of this legislation. So it's a, I mean, it's a, it would be a huge deal yeah. um, if this were to become law in the UK. There was also the case uh, a couple of weeks ago of the meteorologist in California, California um, who was asked to put on a cardigan, a male colleague passed her a cardigan because the, the TV station got, had received complaints about her uncovered shoulders. Yeah, she was wearing a dress, she was wearing a yeah. beaded dress. Yes. Um, and... They were receiving live. It was a live broadcast. She was she was um, forecasting the weather, mm-hmm. um, and they received live complaints about her dress. She reported later mm-hmm. um, being being really disappointed with the public's response, obviously, but she also reported that she had tried another dress, right? They, you know, news anchors, most of us mm. know how this works. You don't wear your own clothes to work. You, you put on mm. clothes that wardrobe gives you, mm. and that's determined very much by what everyone else is wearing and by what screen you're standing in mm. front of. And so she had tried another dress on previously that she'd chosen and it didn't work mm. with the, mm. the green screen it was confusing mm. the technology mm. so mm. she put on this other dress and she also said to be fair to the news station mm. that her co-anchor had handed it to her mm. as a joke that they mm. were receiving these complaints mm. and so they found mm. a cardigan as a joke mm. to mm. say look mm. at how how conservative and and crazy are some of our yeah. viewers are yeah. um which I think will open up some of the conversation that we're going to have yeah. today. Um, before we start on the the theoretical things that we have to say about it, uh, you mentioned it passing the bathroom story. Do you yeah. want to give a little bit of context just in case? Yeah. So in the United States, in certain states, um, certain states have managed to pass legislation regarding it it particularly targets trans people the the news specifically and i think a lot of the backlash and some of the Mm. the controversial topics have specifically focused on trans women Mm. which we think is is very interesting um for a number of reasons but there has been some corporate backlash, some political backlash. So for example, Georgia was unable to pass these laws. It basically keep it's it says that you people need to use public bathrooms allocated to their gender as mm. assigned at birth. Mm. So it should match up with this scientific, you know, pseudo 
scientific biological idea of of sex as determined by your birth certificate um, and you use if you if you were born you know female according to your birth certificate you have to use women's restrooms and and um Georgia tried to pass this law, but the governor vetoed it because Disney basically said they'd stop filming all their movies in Atlanta. Mm. Um, North Carolina and South, is it South Carolina? North Carolina. North Carolina has successfully passed this law. A couple of the other states have also pushed through. And the, the U.S. federal government is suing North Carolina state government. Yes. And North Carolina state government has gone to sued. Uh, in res- in retaliation. It's interesting. I mean, and the state of Minnesota, mm. which of course is the place to live right now, because mm. Minnesota is a um, if you are a progressive liberal, Minnesota is the place to be. Um, the governor of Minnesota and the and the Minnesota state government has has um, basically said that all non necessary government travel to these states mm. um, has been discouraged and mm. um other corporations have also jumped on the bandwagon mm. to boycott these places the phone office in britain issued travel special travel advice to lgbt uh t- tourists from britain uh going to these states saying be careful and you know marking it as a as particularly dangerous for lgbt t- travelers it's it I is will. interesting. Yes. I mean, given some of the cases, some of the cases of homophobic violence that come out of parts of Scotland, for example, mm. I find mm. that mm. to be mm. fascinating. Um, mm. But it is it's interesting. I mean, you've mentioned the relationship between the federal government and the state governments. I mean, this is a um, a key feature mm. of how the United States works, and one of one of the reasons why the United States manages to appear so backwards mm. i think to the rest of the world in mm. some ways is because states are given are given a great deal of freedom um relative to like the uk for example mm. um and there is this you know there's often these big battles between states and the, the federal government and yeah. um it's it's how our our version of federalism mm. works Essentially, yeah. it 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 is interesting that uh, the Obama administration, in particular, has clearly made the decision decision to put this issue sort of front center. Um, you know, Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, made a very high profile speech in which she addressed trans people directly, saying, "You know, we see you, we support you, and we will do what we can to protect you." Yeah. I mean, it, it, historically, I think some of the the biggest political successes mm. um, in terms of civil rights have been the federal government mm. stepping in. Um, in some cases, in in very mm. um, what we're seeing at the time, overbearing ways. I mean, of course, the, in order to desegregate certain schools um, in states in the south. Mm. Mm. The National Guard was sent in on the order of the president um, in order to accompany black children to school, um, <laughs> and and the you know the images that we see of that are 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 shocking and very moving mm. if you've seen those kinds of images. But it, you know it, it reminds us that that the federal government taking a stance mm. here is you know historically how how these kinds of civil rights will be enforced. 
but also this is the you know the way that it should be i think if we're talking about civil rights i I mean i think all the historical point is is absolutely relevant but uh, i also think there's a sense in which obama is using the time that he has because and he knows he doesn't have to fight another election so he, he he's Picking the causes that are dear to him. That was Lyndon B. Johnson's approach yes, as well. Yeah, um, that was LBJ's yeah. approach to civil rights yes, as well. It was yeah. it was yeah. a very similar, um, very similar case. Mm. Um, we'll leave. I think we're going to leave trans issues today for another episode. Um, yes, it's a or another series mm. probably. Mm. Um, it's a big topic. Mm. Um, and one which doesn't affect either of us personally because neither of us is a trans person. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try and get some more knowledgeable voices yes. <laughs> on that. Yes. Um, I think for today, you know, there's the obvious feminist theory that we could use here. Mm. There's kind of the obvious um, discussions about the policing of bodies Um you know, a lot of that is inspired by Foucault mm. and late second wave, early third wave feminist theory about the policing of women's bodies by using um, forms of dress and standards of dress mm. um, and the categorization of people based along male and female, you know, these, these scientific terms in order to enforce certain social behaviors like using mm. using different restrooms. Mm. Um, that's a social practice that is underpinned by certain interpretations of science, mm. I think. Yes. Um, and then there's also, I think, but for us what's more interesting is, is politics with a capital P here. Yeah. Um, the, the way that the political system, Mm. specifically in in Western so-called democratic countries, creates the conditions for these kinds of individual practices and behaviors. Um, With the bathrooms, I just saw um, a friend of mine posted on Facebook an article that's, you know, now a a month or so old um, about a specific guy who was, who was recorded, video recorded, um, policing outside a, like, just, you know, wandering around outside a woman's bathroom, telling women who he didn't think looked woman enough to use the, the bathroom, mm. you know, mm. has no authority, no, yes. you know, he's, and, but then there's another, you know, the, the video of the police officers forcing mm. a woman out of a mm. woman's bathroom, mm. saying that it was against the law for her to use yeah. the bathroom because she didn't look enough of a, of a woman to mm. use the bathroom. Yeah. Um, these have all gone viral. But you've talked a lot about, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time. Mm. Um, you talk a lot about the, the paradox and the, the difficulty of moving between the law mm. at the levels of the state yeah. um, and the individual. Yes. And the ways in which laws get enforced in a way which is illegal Mm. um in a way which is which violates laws of discrimination against Mm. discrimination Mm. 
for example. And the ways in which, the ways in which, um, particularly counter hegemonic activities, resistance activities can expose the laws for what they really are about. So, um, the specific example I'm thinking about, um, it's a, it's a few years old now, um, of the hijab ban in France, you know, the French government in the name of secularism and a kind of universal egalitarianism decided to ban the wearing of the hijab in public spaces, you know, government offices, schools and so on. Um, and this was done in the name of women's rights. The idea is that Muslim women are being forced to wear the hijab, therefore the French government as a secular institution steps in and stops that from happening. So instead of you go from, according to this argument, being forced to wear the hijab to being forced not to wear the hijab. Um, and there is a, a group of performance artists called the, called, who call themselves Nikabich, and we'll put the video link in the description. And they, uh, in this video, you have two obviously white women who combine the niqab, so the, not just the, the headscarf but also the veil and miniskirts and wander on the streets of Paris. And the point they're making is that this is clearly this law is clearly not being enacted in the name of egalitarianism. It is targeting specific women from specific ethnic backgrounds and specific faith backgrounds. Um, and it is the the hijab or the niqab only becomes a threat when it is being worn by a Muslim woman who doesn't com combine it with the miniskirt. Yes. And also the the um, the video is really interesting because one of the things that it it focuses less on them hmm. um, and more on the people watching them, prim specifically men. Hmm. Um, the video highlights men's responses to them. Um, I think quite clearly the hmm. way that men stop and take photos of them mm. and stop and look specifically at them mm. in that that way that that you know I thought you know we decided was misogynist mm. and and sexist that mm. the the tilt of the head and mm. the mm. the looking up and down and mm. the just the the obvious mm. objectification of yeah. their legs mm. specifically mm. Um, there's this this clear comment that mm. whether or not it doesn't really matter what women are wearing, mm. their bodies are being regulated and objectified regardless. Yes, so you have that sort of optimum level of covering, right? So if we if we use the 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 go back to the example of the meteorologist in in America, whose name ironically yeah. is Liberty. Um, her bare shoulders were seen to be threatening, disruptive, inappropriate. inappropriate. I think is the word that conservative yes. grandmas use. Um, because she was not covered enough. Um, had she appeared on TV wearing a hijab, then she'd be too covered. So there's, you know, having to find the right balance of being covered to the right extent and being covered with the right. Things. Yes. So there's a um, like with with the heels, for example, it's um, heels 
one of the you know the things that they do is they make your legs look sexier, right? That that's the yeah. the point of wearing heels. So there's there's a particular look which mm. is about it's almost like a scientific formula 20% mm. sexy mm. 30% straight yeah. you know appearing um straight in a particular kind of a mm. way that is attractive according to a particular set of heteronormative heteronormative aesthetic standards mm. yeah. um Maybe 10% intelligent. I mean, I don't know. I don't yeah. know who makes up these yeah. equations. You yeah. know, it's... Um, all of these women, you know, hmm. what's the right amount of... What's the right clothing yeah. to wear? It, it's... There is no... There is no right. Yeah. In a sense, you, you will never be... None of these women will ever be wearing exactly no. the right thing. Yes. yes. Because the point of it is... Hmm. is Everyone else has the right to say yeah. it isn't right. Yes, and and that was one of the one of the um, key criticisms raised by the slut walk movement. If you remember, a couple of years ago, yeah, when, when a police officer in Toronto, yes, I seem to remember, yes, said, uh, you know, if a woman does not want to be raped, she shouldn't dress like a slut, and that. Understandably, and um, you know, inevitably, inevitably. I would say at that, at that <laughs> um, time, uh, and you know, spirit raisingly um, elicited a, a movement and an international movement. There was slap off movements all over the all over the world, really, of women refusing the victim blaming discourse that 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 entailed, and a lot of that hinged on this idea that. The, the dress uh, of the, the individual woman in question is is an excuse that will always go against the woman because, as you say, someone else can always tell her that what she's wearing is not appropriate. Yeah, and in a sense that's the... that's the, the perceived mm. prerogative mm. Mm. of everyone else yeah. in a sense and and you know of course it cuts all ways mm. so people are policing other people mm. you know who are subject to the same forms of oppression mm. so there's lots and lots of debates and mm. conversations mm. among muslim women for mm. example about um what the veil is and what it does and and how it works mm. and there's lots and lots of vicious debate among mm. you know white and non-white Western women and um, non-Muslim women mm. about acceptable levels of clothing and you know what, how mm. how we should dress and what we should do and you know it's, it goes around and around and around in, in yeah. never-ending circles I mm. feel like and mm. I think there's no if we stick within this mm. realm of the discourse we won't ever get out of it mm. because mm. the answer isn't here. Mm. The answer is somewhere else. Um. Yes, because it's not really about the level of clothing, right? If you, if, if you, as someone who is part of a movement that is trying to challenge these these modes of thinking, 
then you cannot afford to have your response in the same realm as clothing because the problem is not the the, the problem is not finding the right level of clothing no the problem i think well you and i've discussed this mm. quite a bit the problem is the way that the state works to mm. enact and maintain the idea of individual rights yeah. and liberty yeah um and self-sovereignty yeah and how the systems mm. the the political systems in place mm. do not deal mm. very well with the bodies of people who are not straight white landowning tax paying men yeah I guess we should mention Nancy Fraser here mm. and Joan Scott, who are two um, well-known, mm. critical feminist philosophers. Um, they've been—I mean—they've been writing for decades now. Nancy Fraser and Joan Scott both have written on veiling laws in France, yep. um, and they both write on the relationship between feminism and capitalism, which. Mm. I think you find especially interesting mm. um, being the communist that you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Bengali communist that yep. you are. Um, but there's... Nancy Fraser writes a lot about this idea of the public mm. space mm. and the public space as being not just the space outside of the home, any mm. space outside of the home where non, non-related individuals mm. come and meet mm. together and create mm. social interaction. Mm. The public space is more specific for her, and it's inspired by Habermas, but not entirely. Mm. And it's about the public space as being an arena that is distinct from mm. the state. Mm. So when we when we talk about a guy on an airplane pulling mm. the hijab off of a woman on the plane, mm. Mm. he is not an agent of the state no. in the same way mm. that a police officer arresting a citizen mm. is an agent of the yes. state. He is someone different, mm. and he is engaging in a socio-political act that is distinct mm. from the Obama administration drafting a formal letter to all school districts in yeah. the United States saying, please allow gender-neutral bathrooms for your students. There mm. is a fundamental difference. Yeah. And the public arena, yeah. the public space in which this specific discourse is mm. happening that we're talking about mm. here, vigilante police officers, you know, self-appointed mm. um, guardians of morality and, mm. and the, the values of the state, yeah. are in fact citizens yeah. without any of that authority. Yeah. And in this realm, in this arena, mm. we see, you know, as you know, as you often say about mm. below the line comment sections, yeah. we see the very worst and sometimes the very best of humanity appear. Yeah. And this is where a lot of these ideological and moral debates about the relationship between the individual and the state come to a head mm. and where the tensions appear yeah and i think where we can see some of the cracks and failures mm. of of what we like to call democracy mm. yes because of course you know in the 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 
man who takes it upon himself to police the use of, of restrooms is not an agent of the state. But then neither is the company that is sending the woman back home for not wearing heels. It's not... The, the latter has more institutional authority, yes. But you can't really say that they're the agent of the state. Can you? Not in, an, not in the explicit, overt way that I think... Mm. You know, for example, Foucault makes these distinctions mm. between, you know, the armed forces mm. and the police force mm. and, and um, institutions, right? The home office... Mm is not the same as an international corporation, yeah. is not the same as the United States military. Yeah. And capitalism, of course, blurs these lines mm. quite a bit. Yeah. But at the same time, we don't want to equate them all one with the other no. because that's lazy, I think. I mean, it's, the, it's you know, if we, if we follow sort of Louis Althusser and ideological state apparatus and repressive state apparatus, right? So the the police officer and the, the army and immigration control and, and so on, they, are, they would be part of the repressive state apparatus. Um, but the, the corporation that is, that is enforcing a strict dress code for whatever reason could be seen to be part of the ideological state apparatus. Possibly. I mean, I think it, if we equate international corporations mm. with the state, mm. we maybe gloss over yeah. the possibilities of thinking theoretically about the relationships between international corporations and national yeah. governments and yes. nation states. And yes. I think, you know, some of the new, the new Foucault lectures that are mm. coming out focus specifically on this, mm. on this mm. kind of neoliberalism um, and the relationship between that kind of neoliberalism and mm. fascism is really mm. Mm. You know, Foucault is really pointing these out, mm. um, and it denies some of the nuances mm. of those two. Yes, and I think you know when you look at the a, a company sending home a woman for not wearing heels, and a pair of police officers using their badges to force a woman who doesn't look like their idea, mm, their preconceived mm, notion of a mm, woman out of mm, a bathroom mm, and it's mm, caught on video and then mm. disseminated across the globe yeah. on YouTube. Are those two things the same? No, but they're not unrelated. They're not unrelated. Yes. So the the woman who got sent home because she refused to wear high heels, her part of her response was to start a petition to change legislation. In other words, the solution, as she saw it, to this issue was to do to act, was an act which would affect the state, which would involve the state, encourage the state to do something. And arguably, the legislation that has been passed regarding bathrooms mm. has come mm. out of an increasingly vocal transphobic electorate. Yes. So the 
when we talk about the the public sphere, mm. this public arena, mm. that is where the fodder comes from. I mean, yeah. that's where the discourse changes. Mm. It's where it, it mutates itself, mm. and it's where it then provides the skeleton framework yeah. for the state yeah. in its obvious forms yeah. to grab hold of it and to then do something with it. Yes. Which is the fundamental question for democracy really here, especially for progressives like mm. us. Yes. Who like to believe that the electorate should have a certain amount of power and mm. should check the powers of the international corporations and the, mm. the elite politicians mm. Mm. working at the top, right? But, yeah. you know, when that electorate votes for Donald Trump, and you said this <laughs> when Modi won the election two years ago in India, yeah, you said exactly the same. Yeah. It's, it becomes... It becomes very difficult to maintain those those views, and I feel like it's it's just it, it has to do with the messiness of individuals and yeah. their relationship to the state. It it reminds me a little bit of an episode we did a long, long time ago on perhaps our second episode on homosexuality and the legislation that either allows for or criminalizes homosexuality. Yes. And the the problematic relationship between the legislature, the judiciary and the and the executive and the the gap that exists between these these aspects of the state through which or into which bodies that don't quite fit the norm are allowed to disappear. Um Because what do you do when one part of the state, which is explicitly based on public democratic mandate, votes for or decides to enact particularly repressive, you know, transphobic or misogynistic laws? How do you then mobilize another bit of the state to counteract that. To check it. Mm. I mean, the the bathroom laws, mm. like, like the homosexuality laws in India, have been hugely contested, mm. um, to the point where the Obama administration is stepping in mm. and suing a state government. Which is a big thing. I mean, it's a huge deal. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge deal. And I think... And I, th I think, you know, is it, is it enough? Is it effective? Well, as the Western Bengali communist, I would say that it's not, it can't be enough. It can't be the only thing you do. Um, that doesn't mean you don't do it. That doesn't mean you don't fight for it, but it's not going to bring in the kind of real social economic change that you would need to solve it. But, I mean, none of these... I think so much... You know, when we were talking about the slut walk and mm. um, 
and the heels legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, none of these things go anywhere close mm. to challenging, you know, what Nancy Fraser mm. has written about for decades, mm. which is the um, collusion yeah. between mainstream feminism yes. and the capitalist state. Mm. And you can argue that beyond kind of the, the more narrow discourse of feminism, and you can argue beyond that to kind of identity politics mm. Mm. more broadly. Um, but I think specifically when we talk about gender identity mm. Mm. And, mm. and sexual identity mm. and feminism, that these particular forms of, of radical action have yet to really create a sense of class solidarity. Yeah. In, in recognizing that the neoliberal capitalist system is designed and was designed in the 18th and 19th centuries to oppress all of us. Hmm. I mean, the, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. I mean, you were just talking about this when we talk about the, the history of, of the democratic state, particularly hmm. in the United hmm. States. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights were mm. designed mm. in the first instance mm. to protect the liberty mm. of the middle class, professional, mm. landowning, tax paying, straight white man. Yeah. They were all cis men, mm. but that was not, you know, it's an anachronistic term here. Um, and part of that liberty mm. was specifically about allowing them to do mm. things like own slaves and hit their wives. Yeah. And to deny their wives mm. any sort of economic liberty or agency or to yeah. grant them mm. economic agency. You mm. know, men mm. could give their wives an allowance or not. And that was seen to be a part of their right, their right mm. to freedom. Yeah. And so the transition away from that form of democracy mm. towards allowing all of, all of us mm. full political and social agency and empowerment mm, mm. has been uneven, yeah. to say the least. Because, of course, those rights are mutually contradictory, right? You know, uh, the the straight white landowning man's rights to decide whether or not he gives an allowance to his wife cannot coexist with the woman's right to economic independence. So the the idea that democracy can ever rep democracy in this form can ever represent the rights of everybody is somehow meaningless. In order to truly represent the rights of everybody, we need to come up with a different system. Do we not? Yeah, I mean, it feels like too one of the ways that activists have tried to tried to enshrine yeah. rights mm. within within the system tried to claim rights mm. to access rights and then the way that the the system appropriates mm. is to create to create language to create mm. terms mm. to identify categories of people yeah 
to say these people have been denied rights by the system. Yeah. These people need to be given their rights back because mm. they have historically been denied yeah. and continue to be denied rights. And so we have the creation of more and more terms mm. to try and identify. Mm. And it's, it seems like, you know, the colonial government did this so mm. well mm. in India mm. um, that the Indian state mm. has its own version of yeah. this where we, um, you know, we, we come up with as many ways of finding those voices that have been silenced, the identities that have been yes. invisible, mm. to then try and reclaim, mm. reclaim some semblance of political agency. Except I think, and I know this is simplifying it, a, it quite a lot, but part of my issue with the discourse of rights as a whole is that it always ends up being at the level of the individual. So even when you when you talk about collective rights, they somehow manifest itself themselves at the level of the individual. So when you were earlier talking about the the lack of solidarity, that part of the problem is that neoliberal neoliberalism has atomized society to the point where cross community solidarity is becoming more and more difficult. I think even the idea of building collective rights, the idea that you can have a collective agent who is going to get rec legal, social, political recognition as a collective, as opposed to an individual, seems to be really difficult. What's well, I mean? It, it, I mean, you can simplify it even more and say that perhaps that is. You know, it's all bound up in how the economic agent, homo economicus, yes. you know, Foucault's and Marx's yes. term, mm. um, is related to the way that electoral politics and in, in, in representative democracies work, which is, you know, one person, one vote. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get your ballot and you register as an individual voter and you pay mm. taxes as an individual. And, mm. you know, this, this whole... Um, this social contract, yeah. you know, in, in the Rousseauian sense of, mm. of an individual and their obligations and their rights toward the state mm. and the state's reciprocal obligations. And it, it denies the, mm. the possibility of difference. But in a sense, the idea of difference just sort of reproduces the idea of the individual. Hmm. Yeah, that's the, I mean, it's the discourse thing, right? You, you need, we need to come up with a, a better frame of reference. We need to come up with a, with a better set of vocabulary to talk about collectives, to, to find a way of conceptualizing collective as a unit that makes sense. The individual doesn't necessarily have to be the most basic fundamental unit. I mean, there's a lot of directions I could take that. One of them is that the individual as the, as the basic unit is a 20th century thing. Yes. Um, and was 
partly an attempt to reject the notion of the family mm. as being the basic unit. Mm. Because the family, in a lot of feminist discourse, is seen as oppressive mm. to women and children. I mean, don't even get me started on the rights of children yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> and children as political agents. Yes. Yeah. But there's the other the other question which is fashioning a way of imagining an individual's relationship to a collective. Yeah, I think that's that's what Nancy Fraser is is arguing when she so I think the the feminist rejection of family as a safe space is you know completely understandable and and, and completely justified. But in in the movement away from family as a basic unit to the individual as a basic unit, certainly many strands of feminism seems to have allowed itself to to be dovetailed very neatly with neoliberal capitalism, which also sees the individual and the individual's economic potential as the most fundamental unit. And what then gets left out again I would say this what then gets left out is class you would always say that I would always say that see I'm of the the more Gramscian perspective which is that if if class as we have it yes the the various conceptions of class as we have it were good enough yes It would have worked. Yes. Like in the in in the kind, and that's a trite way of putting it. And I don't I don't quite believe that. Yeah. But I think, for me, class isn't class. Just isn't quite. Maybe it's because we haven't mm. we haven't yet. Foucault died too early and didn't yet give yeah. us a better definition of, of class. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I um. I think this is where you and I. Yeah. We don't sit in different camps on this, no. but I think you and I have are moving in parallel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we can overstate the difference because I, I, I think I agree. We need to we need to come up with better, more more appropriate, more um, satisfactory definitions of class. I feel like we need to mention. Just pause. Yeah. Don't forget what you're going to say. I feel like we need to mention intersectionality yeah. because we, that's a buzzword. It's yeah. made its way into mainstream internet yes. social media yes. discourse as it should. Intersectionality was especially when it yeah. when it became hmm. widely used among academics was hugely valuable, um, and it definitely inserted yeah. some much-needed criticism into what was very much a white, middle-class feminist philosophy that Mm. denied the existence of women of color. Absolutely. Intersectionality, we're not... We're not saying throw that out. But for us, intersectionality does not deal with class well. No. And it doesn't deal with... It doesn't deal with the complex relationships between an individual and their collectives, their various yes. collectives, in a way which is productive. Yes. It describes it. Yes. But all it does is say, this is how it is. Yes. Without giving us... Without giving us anything more, I feel like. Which, in my slightly less charitable moments, is something I think of Foucault. 
a fair bit. In that I think Foucault is very good at describing how institutions work and how society structures itself and how the how the various networks of power and processes exist. But as you said, perhaps because he died when he did, I I don't get a blueprint for moving forward. For him, though, I mean, his ideas of counterconduct mm. mm. were were that, and I think for him, he argues that where there is self-discipline and yeah. where there is the conduct of the self, there yeah. is always counterconduct in yes. various ways. So for him, it is already a part of the system that we, for him, yes. it is. We do move in a, in a direction. Yes. For him, I don't. I'm not sure that it's forward because yeah. it's a little bit, little bit Hegelian yes. for him. Yes. But in, in a sense, there's there's a. It is already a part of the system. Yeah. And so for us, it is looking at. But then just for Marx as well. The, yeah, and I think yeah. Foucault took it from Marx. Yes. So you know, yes. he yeah. he was informed by Marx on yes. that yes. on that point. I mean, this is a paradox of yeah. doing theory. Yes. Do we trust that no. the that all the 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 radical social organizing and the mm. the battling the system mm. and mm. challenging mm. the state mm. in various ways mm. and the speaking truth to power yeah. or whatever you know? Do we trust that it's enough? Hello. Okay. Is it enough? Well, clearly not, because it hasn't worked so far. We are. We haven't had. We don't live in our utopia. We don't live in our utopia yet. But one day. Our beautiful utopian space colony. No. With our hydroponic gardens and. No. One day. One day. <laughs> well, yet again, we failed to solve. Anything really. Anything. Um, all the world's problems. No. But um. Hope that's been of interest. Um, let us know if you have any solutions. Yeah, tweet at us. Yes. Um, let us know on SoundCloud or Facebook or, or Twitter. Um, if you get your podcast from iTunes, then rate us, review us. It helps other people find us. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?